0: Welcome to the Hill City Church podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org.
1: Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of, the, of this law in these statutes, and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. If You guys can grab a seat. Good morning, Phil City. It's good to be here. So, Lightco, there you are. So here's our high school, middle school group. They come in to worship with us, and then once a month they head out, and they are going on upstairs. So if you have a middle schooler, you guys can, can head out with them. They're going to go to the second floor. So we'd love to have you join there. Now, I'm really excited. So today, um, we have a guest with us uh, named Sam Bierg. I'm going to let him tell you about himself. So Sam, why don't you come on out? Now, through our, throughout our series, we've been in a series called The Throne. And Sam came down and he taught uh, in our school theology. And man, it was, a, it was just a joy. And, and he's an Old Testament scholar. He he runs the Spurgeon School of Theology. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Okay, the Spurgeon School of Theology. You can tell them a little more about that. But I was telling him we are going to do a throne series. And I said, hey, what resource might you have? Here's what we're going to be doing. And he was like, Dale Ralph Davis. And I'm like, man, I think there are like three guys in my hometown named Dale Ralph. But I'm like, I already like this guy. So actually, he, this, this guy's a brilliant Old Testament scholar. And he was one of the primary sources that I used throughout our our, our series on the throne and it was Sam who gave me that uh then I was doing some GK Beale stuff too but man it was a gift to me you just talking through that and give me that that resource and uh it's it's helped me out tremendously uh but Sam's a great teacher uh, of the Bible you guys are going to be blessed today uh by his teaching what I want to do is I just want to pray and I'm going to turn it over to you brother yep. all right yep all right God we love you thank you for Jesus God thank you for life that we have in him thank you uh for allowing us to gather here Uh, and lift the name of Jesus high. Father, I lift up Sam to you now as he's going to be teaching us uh, about Solomon. God, use him in this place, Uh, soften hearts in this place, and just show us amazing things from your word. God, I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks.
0: Yeah, there's, there's a little bit of a challenge in the comment about Dale Ralph. Like, I know this is a young church. And there's someone in here, some young enterprising couple that needs to name their son Dale Ralph, okay? Um, I mean, I, if Mallory and I have a couple more kids, we already have four, and so we'll see if Dale Ralph gets in there. But you can maybe beat us to it. Um, yeah, just really thankful for you guys. My first entry point into uh, Hill City is, is Danny Mac, right? And so what you, I'm from Texas, and uh, Danny and I, when we get together, it's just like a ton of idioms. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but he just it's like a duck on a June bug. You know, like he just nonstop. And I do the same kind of stuff. It will probably come out in the, in the sermon. But so yeah, I love Danny Mac and, and just have really grown to love Brad as well and have been uh, really encouraged by y'all's uh, Just hospitality, hyper hospitality um, from Chloe and others. So really, really thankful uh, for, for how you guys have cared for us. Um, I, uh, my wife's name is Mallory. She's going to be at the second service. We have four kids, and uh, so thankful to be here, bring greetings to the first service uh, from her. We're members of Liberty Baptist Church in Liberty, Missouri, which is right outside Kansas City. My kids are diehard Chiefs fans. There will be a W today. Um, and so, uh, anyway, but Spurgeon College, happy to, to, if I get to catch you afterwards or something, to talk to you about that. But we just, we study the Bible. That's what we do there, and so Thankful to be here. Let me pray very briefly, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we ask that um, you cause your servants to hear uh, your word this morning, in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, my assignment is to cover Solomon, um, the whole life of Solomon, and so kind of a, a bridge and cap uh, to the to the series you guys are just coming out of, and as you go into. Advent season. And so it's appropriate to ask, uh, who who was Solomon? Lived a long time ago. um, And so to put a little bit of modern flavor on it, this is is how I would express to you who Solomon was. Solomon would be kind of like uh, rolling up all into one person uh, these figures. Jeff Bezos, Prince Charles of England, Barack Obama, Bill Gates, Hugh Hefner, Steve Jobs, and Shakespeare all into one person. Don't, don't push that analogy too far, but if you get those, and maybe throw some Taylor Swift in there, okay? So if you get all of those figures, then you kind of have a sense of what he was like in his day um, and, and how scripture seems to characterize him. So on, on one hand, he's royalty and just has unparalleled power as an entrepreneur scientist type. Um, he was on the cutting edge of the tech industry. He would have been cool with the tech bros like back then. He would, he would have understood what was going on there. But then on the other hand, he is a marital and relational and, and sexual wreck. Um, so he's just got all these things in the closet that are not going well, all while yet being a best-selling poet and, and author. Um, the, he's just an intera- interesting international phenom really, so lives a chart-topper, blockbuster kind of life, but today those are kind of the wow factor, firecracker aspects of him. Today what he's going to be as the story rolls up, this is 11 chapters that we'll cover just in quick pace, he's really a cautionary tale um, for us this morning and is going to present himself as uh, a warning in, in your life, and my life, and he's this constant contrast, um, just like the proverbs that he wrote. He's this contrast between wisdom and foolishness. Um, he's a contrast between wickedness and righteousness, right and wrong. So what we're going to do is just look at six different uh, windows into his life as kind of portals in to understand him, and they'll all be presented as contrasts, kind of almost conflicts in terms. And so go ahead and turn to First Kings one. Um, And let me just give you like a warning and like a buckle up. Uh, We're going to be moving, flying through here fast. So if you can listen fast, then I will talk fast. Um, But you really, 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 really need to be with me in your scriptures um, following along and, and I'll, I'll signal to you every time and give a little bit of a linger so you can get over there but it's very important because the story tells itself and I'm just gonna kinda put some salt in it, okay? No pun intended, Salt Company people. So, uh, so that's, that's where, where we're going and you really, really need to follow along. So here's this first window in, window number one is a peaceful man of blood. He's a peaceful man of blood. So is that um, an oxymoron or a contradictory uh, idea here? Maybe, Um, but Solomon's very name means peace. So Shalom, you've heard that. Uh, Well, his name is the derivative of that. And it's kind of like this good omen that just hovers over his whole life. And he is cast in the story of God as a peace bringer in his day. And to some degree, large degree, he really does pull that off. Um, But in 1 Kings 1 through 2, in effort to establish his reign, uh, according to the way David, his father, and I know y'all have been working your way through his life, um, his father tells him, Look, you need to establish your kingdom and you need to deal with some things. And this has like this mafia feel to it. And so I just want to read to you. This is chapter 2, 1 Kings 2, verses 1 through 6. And it says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do, and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons Pay attention, close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me what he did to me. How he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. So his name is Peace, but his dad is saying, don't let these guys go uh, to their grave in peace. So you, it has this mafia feel to it, right? Um, so King David is telling his son, don't, don't let Joab uh, die, don't let Shimei, uh, Shimei die, with, uh, with peace, right? Look at 1 Kings chapter 2 at the very end, and this is how it kind of ends for Shimei, right? It says, uh, this is verse 30, 46 of 1 Kings 2. It says, then the king, meaning Solomon, commanded Beniah the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. So he eventually kills uh, deals with his brother Adoniah, who had tried to take over the kingdom uh, in his place. He tried to marry Abishag that y'all covered uh, last week. This would have been a, a play for the throne, and he puts him down. And so he's this conflict in, uh, in terms already. He, he's a man of peace, and he establishes peace, as we'll see, but he also um, kind of gets dirty doing it, and David even encourages him to do so. And so he's something. Uh, Uh, we thought he was going to be weak, right? He's raised in the palace, but he's no um, uh, Bambi in Baghdad. I mean, he's not, he is not weak. You drop this dude off um, and he turns out to be kind of from SEAL Team 6. He is not afraid uh, to deal with things in the way that he needs to deal with them. So he's establishing his throne, but he's doing it in questionable ways. There's this contrast between his name and what he eventually does in the kingdom as he brings about peace, but he's also doing it in the back alley in, in kind of some some backwards ways. So there's dissonance here. There's contrast, there's static and the story that's beginning to 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 flow and be injected into the narrative. Look at first Kings three verse three. First Kings three verse three says Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. He's a man of peace, but he's starting to already show up with some uh, false religion stuff. Let me just read between the lines for you. you, you you're not supposed to sacrifice um, at the high places. This is where false religion is going on. So he's, he's already starting to show some weird signs, but it's also saying that he's walking in the statutes of David. Only he did this. So he's got this small aspect of hypocrisy that's already growing and his heart, and the authors letting us in on that. Skip over one chapter, look at verse 24, 1 Kings 4:24 through 25. And this is where we see the Lord establishing peace in, in his life. It says, For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tifash to Gaza over all the kings of the west of Euphrates and he had peace on all sides around him and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon so what a what a uh, sound of peace right every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon so this first window is showing this conflicted life of contrast, even from the very beginning. He's both a man of blood um, and a man of peace. He's bringing peace, but he's doing it in dubious ways. There's a bit of dissonance that's already happening, and we're seeing that God is using him to establish the borders of the kingdom, but he's doing it um, in, in, a, in a wicked way, in ways that would be splashed on the screen of history as, as we're even uh, reading it today. Let's look at this second window. It says, Uh, we'll call it political juggernaut and political adulterer. He's a political juggernaut and a political adulterer. Um, In any way you slice it, and and just by the intro alone, I mean, he's a baller, right? So George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, these guys don't have anything on him as, as a leader. And underneath the surface, though, this political ability, this political prowess came at a heavy tax of his own soul. 1 Kings 4, 1 through 7, we see his administrative wisdom here before it goes wrong. So again, this contrast, but 1 Kings 4, 1 through 7 says, King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. And then it names a number of officials. So you see his wisdom in how he even structures the kingdom. Um, He's kind of entrepreneurial in this sense. He's cutting a new path that David had not done, but he uh, establishes priests secretaries, recorders, commanders, counselors, palace officials. Verse 7 says Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month of the year. So he's this organized and administrative genius um, but we note a touch of selfishness. Even in the passage that we read in Deuteronomy, it says that you're going to go after, Israel's going to go after this king that looks like the nations. And so Solomon seems to be taking his cues from nations that are surrounding him in the way that he even sets up the kingdom. Um, and it, and it kind of turns in on him. And so everyone's there to preserve and, and to care and to serve him and his family and what he wants to do. Look at chapter 4, verse 20, just a few Verses over, 1 Kings 4.20, it says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. So this is Abraham in and, and Genesis 12. This is the promise coming true, even in Solomon's era. It says, there are as many as the sand on the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. It's the peace side. Solomon ruled over all of the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And we're supposed to say, what a leader. What a man. Um, So the picture here, the window, is of political and economic peace and serenity um, in his time. But there's cracks in the pavement. Something has gone awry. And Solomon's sinful fault lines in his soul, again, are creating um, dissonance for us. And he's, you've got this wise versus foolish juxtaposition. Look at back a little bit, 1 Kings 3. Look at 1 Kings 3, verses 1 through 4. This is 1 Kings 3. It says, Solomon, here's the cracks in his, in his integrity. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Wait a second. The passage we just read, Deuteronomy 17 said, you're never supposed to go back to Egypt. But here, Solomon is marrying, uh, making a political alliance with Egypt. It says, he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places. Remember, false religion here. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord, Solomon loved the Lord, Walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer thousands of burnt offerings on that altar. And this is a picture of political and spiritual adultery. Solomon is cheating on God. There's this contrast of he, he's walking with the Lord, but he's not walking with the Lord. And you should feel, I feel, a degree of resonance with Solomon. This is happening in your heart every day. It's happening in my heart. There's a fight for our walk, for our path. And that's how it starts for him. It's a few decisions here and there, expediency. Solomon is morally cracking and crumbling right before our eyes, and, and the TNT, so to speak, is strapped all throughout the building of his life. It's laced throughout his life. It's just the switch hasn't been clicked yet. There's no explosion yet, but you can see that it's, it's beginning to form. So think back again to, to Deuteronomy 17. The, um, the author is cueing us here with, with Pharaoh and Egypt to this ominous music that's supposed to be playing in the background. It's not going well. You don't go back to Egypt, and yet here he is marrying and making a political alliance with with Pharaoh. Let's skip ahead to the end of the story so you can see what's happening. Skip over to chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. It's just important to see how the, the building does crumble in his life. 1 Kings 11. It says, Now King Solomon, this is the end of his life, "...loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods." Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines and his wives turned away his heart. So just to put this in perspective, uh, there will be around 700 people that will come in and out of this place today to worship the Lord. That's how many wives Solomon had. What a clown, (laughs) right? I mean, he is a political adulterer. That's what we're seeing. And they turn his His heart. Just to be clear, the Lord has nothing against these people groups in the general sense. This is not like an ethnic comment. This is a religious comment. And you can see that by saying they turned his heart away. Solomon is expressly told by David, his father in chapter 2, and God, specifically in chapter 3, to guard his heart. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. He read Deuteronomy 17 and he ignored it. He's a classic hearer of the word, but not a doer. He's corrupted. And so for us, we must note that it is in our heart too, where we are forging who we are. The heart in scripture, you probably know this, no help to Disney, right? Uh, Is this junk drawer term of our will, our mind, our cultivated emotions, our discipline. That's our heart, It's it's a junk drawer term. And Solomon allowed and encouraged even corrosive elements into his heart and it caused his heart to rust out. And so out of this rusted heart, he starts leaking his affections for God and it's destructive. So the second conflicting contrast is that Solomon is an incredible leader, um, a political juggernaut, but in the end he shows himself to be a political adulterer as well. And he prostituted his own personal holiness, his position, and even God's people for his own ends, his gain. And and he's this ruler and rebel at the same time. Third window, he's deliverer of wise prayers, yet a foolish steward. He's a deliverer of wise prayers, yet a foolish steward. Solomon, again, is this conflict in spiritual realities happening before us. At stages of his life, he shows incredible wisdom and piety. Um, But at other times, uh, he looks just like he's squandering God's blessing and answers to prayer. Look again at chapter 3, flip back to 1 Kings 3, verse 5. And this is a large chunk. I want to read it to you, though. It's important for background. It says, um, 1 Kings 3, verse 5, it says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Skip over to verse 7. It says, and now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. A great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. This is his request to God. That I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. And if you will walk, notice the if language. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So what comes from here in this passage is, is an example of his wisdom. But it's again this eerie contrast in wisdom versus foolishness. And, and uh, the author of 1 first King, first Kings brings out this story of these two prostitutes. And maybe you've, you've heard this story. But these two prostitutes, they both have babies. They're living in Israel. And they're brought to him. Um, one had stolen uh, the other's baby because she, the first one had rolled over on her. It's a, it's a sad story had rolled over on, on their child and, and stolen and swapped out the children. These are morally corrupt and broken women. And they're brought to Solomon, and he adjudicates between the two of them, discerning how uh, to, to figure out which mom is truly the mom of this one that is still alive. Um, and he says, cut the baby in two. And the real mom immediately goes, no, don't do that. Just give her over. And he goes, that's the mom, right? And all, so the text says, all of Israel... Was wowed by um, Solomon's wisdom, but the author is actually wanting us to see something's not right here. Why doesn't he deal with the fact that these are two prostitutes? This is not the way the people of God are supposed to liberal uh, to live, and yet it's so normal. It's so normalized in the time, and and we're seeing in a place like Leviticus nineteen twenty nine. It says do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. Meaning, this is what Solomon was reading, just like Deuteronomy 17. He knows that this is evil, and yet he deals with it in a way that's kind of expedient, and it seems like wisdom, but is it wisdom? Does he deal with the root issue? And our author is cueing us to that. Prostitution is out of the bounds in Israel, it, it, sexual immorality, and we know, right, culturally, when that reigns in a culture, it, it is so brutal um, on the lowly and the weak and the vulnerable in a culture, not least of all the prostitute. And, and he's supposed to be wise, but is he wise? Does he have real wisdom here? So the tension is supposed to rise in our hearts and in our minds. We, we need a better king. We need someone who's going to bring real wisdom. Window number four, a hypocritical holy man. A hypocritical holy man. Solomon is clearly depicted in 1 Kings to be something of a uh, harsh slave trader, um, slave driver in in the actual sense. Uh, He's this sexually and relationally sinful and broken man, um, and he is breaking the people around him because he is broken. And yet we've already seen his personal piety. So he's this hypocritical holy man. He, he's, he's delivering wise prayers at points, and then he's showing foolishness. And then this is most of all shown, this hypocritical holy man, and the fact that God uses him to deliver the very temple of God. This is chapter 9, 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. 1 Kings 9, 1 through 8, it says, As Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord in the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. I mean, God is appearing to this man uh, a second time even. As he had also appeared to him at Gibeon, verse 3, And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built By putting my name there forever, my eyes and my heart will be there for all time, says the Lord. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish you a royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. You see the contrast. But if you turn aside from following me, which he does, and we've seen that, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given you. And you know how the story works. There's exile before Christ comes. This plays out, not in his day, but immediately after it begins to corrupt and corrode from there. Drop down to verse 15 in chapter 9. 1 Kings 5, uh, chapter 9, verse 15. It says, And this is the account of the forced labor, meaning slaves, that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the millo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and, and Megiddo and Gezer. So he's using slave labor to create his kingdom. Uh, drop down to verse 19. So 1 Kings nine nineteen, it says, and all the store cities that Solomon had in the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion, all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be his slaves. And so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers, they were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. So we've already read of Solomon's political adultery, um, with these false gods of, of the nations, his relational and marital wreckage, but here he's shown to be um, not wise, but a foolish steward. And, and you see this, most of all, if you keep reading in the story of Rehoboam, his son, as he takes over afterwards, their response, uh, Solomon's um, counselors say, Solomon was hard upon us. He was literally a slave driver. And so he's not actually that wise of a steward. He's not very thoughtful. He, he just leaves a mess in his, in his background. Um, and that he's used these people who have been subjected to himself through war. And we can draw these lines, as it were, and you should. You've got to see God's providence in the middle of these things and in your own life. Um, when you start pointing fingers at Solomon, you've got to understand that there's just as many, if not more, that have to be pointed back at you. Because what's happening here is the old saying says, maybe Danny Mac would say something like this, um, but God is drawing a straight line with a crooked stick. That's what's happening. And that's who Solomon is. All right, here's this fifth window. Second to last one. Splendid architect and spiritual adulterer. He's a splendid architect and a spiritual adulterer. Look at the end of chapter six. Go to chapter six the very last verse, 38, and then the very beginning of of chapter 7, verse 1. It reads like this, it says, And in the 11th year of the month of Bull, which is the 8th month, the temple house, or the house, was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. So we know this by now in the sermon, right? But something isn't right with Solomon. Jesus tells us um, where your treasure is, there your heart is. So where is Solomon's treasure? Where's his trust? Where is his heart? Where's his hope? What's in his own stuff? And you can see that by he spends 13 years making his own house uh, and seven years making the temple. Look at chapter 7, verse 8. Chapter 7, verse 8 says, his own house where he was to dwell in the other court back of the hall was of like workmanship, meaning to the temple. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter whom he had taken in marriage. So it's not even just his own house. It, it's hard to watch it for you and me, but Solomon is a telltale sign of a sellout. I mean, he's prostituted his soul to be counted among the lives of the rich and famous. He maybe fell in love with his own legacy, but we're seeing him crashing and burning before our very eyes. And we have at least two takeaways. I don't want to get overly specific. I want to push it um, more broadly to you. But here's two takeaways, points of application. One is this. There is a Solomon in all of us. It's the first one. There's a Solomon in all of us. Some of you in here are in trouble because you don't think you're like Solomon and you're wrong. There's a Solomon in all of us. You walk in here this morning with various forms of hypocrisy, infidelity, relational wreckage, just like Solomon. It's lurking in your heart. It's just not splashed on the screen this morning. Solomon gets exposed, but he's not any different than you are. You are a hypocrite. I am a hypocrite. I'm a religious broker. You are too. And we're tempted to prostitute our personal holiness for the good life. that that the world tells us to gain? I mean, what would it gain you to get all the Instagram followers in the world and yet lose your soul? And yet we spend so much time cultivating our online life, our friendship life. There's a Solomon in all of us. So you have to keep your heart in God. Second takeaway is small cracks in your character will expand with pressure and time small cracks in your character will expand with pressure and time. So Solomon became established in his reign, but then pressures started mounting. Responsibilities grew. Opportunities for sin increased. I mean, he had the power, the money to do it. And Solomon's affections for God cooled. They became cold. And so there's this slow fade of his fear of God that he talks about in the book of Proverbs. And his affections for God slowly begin to tamp down. They go from a roar to a whimper to a sigh to silence in chapter 11, where there's just nothing left almost. And so he served, like I said, as this cautionary tale for us this morning. And he's standing in Scripture as a warning to you, to me. Some of you in here are a divorce waiting to happen and you don't even know it but it's the cracks in the foundation some of you in here are home wreckers and you just don't know it yet some of you to frighten you may end up in prison because you are playing around with some dark stuff and it's going to corrode your heart and it's going to take you to a place you don't want to go that's what Solomon is teaching us this morning let's look at this final one there was one last window right and it's Solomon the lesser and then Solomon the greater. Solomon the lesser and Solomon the greater. The queen of Sheba in chapter 10, this is this foreign uh, dignitary. She comes in and she had heard and she had seen that Solomon's uh, grandeur and his splendor was unmatched. And so she says, when I finally, I had heard about it, but when I saw it, 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 it didn't even tell the half. Right? And she just sees his glory and yet we see the other side of it, right? He's a womanizer. He's a fraud. He's unjust, and we're supposed to see, man, he's at best a half-good king. We have to have some kind of better king who isn't addicted to money and power and and sex and all of these things. We've got to have someone who can actually fix us, but Rehoboam doesn't do it. His son, uh, you know, Solomon's story just ends, and then Rehoboam takes over the, sp- the kingdom, splits in two, northern and southern, and from there, just one after the other, these kings, they just come and go. They don't get near the amount of time that David and Solomon gets, and every one of the uh, written across the stone of their life is, and he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he died. Almost every one of them. And he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he died. And he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he died. And he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he died. It's like, man, are we going to get... I mean, can somebody, anybody, save us? Is there ever going to be a real king that's going to fix this deal? And then what do we do? Hundreds of years later, we crack open the pages of the New Testament. Verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David... The son of Abraham. And then you skip forward to his baptism, and what does the father say of Jesus at his baptism? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He does what's right in the eyes of the Lord. And then we also know that Jesus dies, but he won't stay dead. This is the king who's going to pull me and you out of our sin, out of our destruction. And he's worthy of your worship, he's worthy of your praise. And he's he's able, capable to save you, and he doesn't come with all this baggage like David and Solomon do. My encouragement to you this morning is to take this cautionary tale and flip it on its head and go, okay, Jesus is like the reverse of that. He's the King that I needed, that I wanted, that I have to have, that's worthy of my worship, that can actually save me, that can actually lead me. Let me pray, and then the the band will come. Lord, you are good and you do good, and so we pray that you would teach us about forgiveness, that you would save us. In Jesus' name, amen.